Father, I would turn to you as our heavenly Father. You're the one who sets the example uh, for us. And you've given us your word. You've shown us which way we're to go, neither to the right nor to the left, but straight to you when we lack wisdom. You said you would provide it for us. And as fathers, we need a lot of that. And I pray that you would prompt us on a regular basis to seek you out, to pay attention to your spirit when it comes to fatherhood. I would also pray, Lord, for any father in here who is estranged from their children, that you would still bless them on this day, that, Lord, if there is any way possible, reconciliation could take place. But I ask that you would minister to them in a special way that only you can. And for the message here, Lord, in Acts chapter 17, I pray that you would, as I always pray, give us insight, give us wisdom. Help us to know the history and remember it of how the church began, what Paul did as we're going through the book of Acts and what his successes were. I would pray for this, Lord, not only for the men, but for all of us who are in here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the Apostle Paul, of course, he was traveling all around Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. He went down to Athens and over to Corinth, from Corinth to Ephesus, and all the way back over to uh, Antioch over there. And he would explain who God was. He would use reason. Uh, He would think logically. He would give detail. He would give evidence or proofs. He would proclaim Jesus and him crucified, preaching him. And from all the scripture, which is the final authority, he would refer back to. Now, when he got to Athens, from, from Philippi down to Athens, it's about 100 miles. And that whole trek that he took, if he did it a couple of times, it'd be several thousand miles. So he traveled great distances to get the gospel message to the known world at that time, as his, was his habit. He would go to the synagogue first. And after the synagogue, if he had a chance to go into the public square, he would go into the public square. But he ended up in this particular chapter in Athens. And it was the empire's intellectual metropolis, the empire being Rome. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are all known for being there. And there was the Acropolis or Mars Hill. And Athens was established five centuries before Jesus was there. So this is an ancient city, even in the time of Paul, and it was the educational and philosophical center. Now, if you went to uh, Athens today, you would go, probably go to the museums, the Museum of the Areopagus. They, they have that set up, and it looks similar uh, to some of the buildings that they would have back then. But you could see pictures of the um, pictures and also statues of the gods that they would have. And Paul, when he went into the city, he was really grieved over all the idols, all the statues which were there. And they would line the streets. They would be in the area of the Areopagus and and through the rest of the city. And you might see statues of Zeus, Hera, Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, Athena, Demeter, uh, Hermes, Poseidon, Hades, Hestia, and Eros. You, You would see Eros is that little Cupid. Uh, God, the one with the wings, you know, you, you would see all these gods that would be there in statue form and people would make offerings to them. Each God had their own particular uh, area of expertise. We know that Zeus was the king of all gods. Hera was the queen of all gods. Ares was the god of war. Apollo was the god of philosophy. Of course, we'll come to Apollo in the next chapter. Artemis was the goddess of hunting animals and childbirth. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and defense. Hermes was the god of travel. Poseidon was the god of the sea. And so if you got in a ship, you'd probably make an offering to Poseidon before you headed out into the deep on a sea. And Hades, of course, was the god of the underworld. And Hestia was the goddess of home and family. And so you would sacrifice to these gods, make offerings to these gods, and they'd have temples for several of them there. Now, last week we covered the Epicureans and the Stoics who would also meet on Mars Hill or the Areopagus, and they would discuss the virtues of philosophy and the elements in the world, as I touched on last week. But we're going to pick it up, just go back a few verses to Acts chapter 17 and verse 13. 
It says, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Verse 19 says... Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, this is the hill of Ares or Mars Hill, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walk around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now Paul was a wordsmith. He knew his Hebrew, he knew his Greek. And the word that he used for very religious it could also be used as superstitious. And he probably used that particular word for a reason so that they would get the double meaning out of it. Not only are they religious, but they're superstitious and they feel they have to sacrifice to a particular God because bad things can happen, bad juju, if you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do and give the right offering. And so that's the environment that Paul came to. Now, Paul also... He felt in his heart this unsettling feeling. He saw all the idols. He was greatly distressed. He was alarmed. He was disturbed, upset, agitated, uneasy, shaken, distraught, troubled because of the idolatry. When you look at our world today, are you troubled? Are you, in some cases, distraught? Have you ever had to say to yourself, that's enough news. I cannot handle any more news. You know, what is going to go on in this world and where are we headed? Is it going to get worse in two years or is it going to get better? Is inflation just going to continue to ratchet up or is it going to fall down? Is the cost of doing business going to increase? Is the dollar going to decrease? Should you be buying gold? Are they going to come and take away your cash that you have and are, if they transfer by the way this is a, a side note whenever they've changed currencies in any country the currency that was the ruling currency that gets changed usually loses 40% of its value and so if we change over to a crypto type system there's a strong chance that that would happen again that it would lose 30 or 40% of its particular value. And you look at that and you go, oh, I can't even think about that right now. I'm just putting down my phone, the news. I'm not going to look at the computer anymore because who still gets the newspaper? Anybody get newspapers or magazines? A few people still get the newspaper. There's a place that I go, they, they still get a newspaper. And it's so thin now. Um, again, a side note, my father used to have the largest paper route for the San Diego Union Tribune. He had trucks lined up in front of our house and the neighbors would just complain to high heaven, those trucks being out there. And, and he had filled each one of those trucks to the cab with newspapers. And he'd hire people to go out. I used to be a paper boy down in Chula Vista. I would hold those papers out and go, paper, sir. You know, and, and they'd buy the papers and you'd get a tip. And that paper on Sunday... It was like a phone book. The thing was just massive. And you look at the paper today, it's hardly as thick as a magazine. It's going by the wayside. And I, I can remember even when Penny and I got married, going through the newspaper and reading the news almost from cover to cover and even looking in the, 
whether the help wanted ads or the for sales, you know, it, all of that stuff, the classifieds. And of course, you had the comics on Sunday that you had to go through. And then you read the parade magazine that would be in there. And then you'd clip out the coupons and you know, just all the stuff that was going on. There'd be the national and the local and the, the human interest. You know, all of those different parts were in the newspaper. And it was big business. And now you start reading, which is all the news which is out there. I haven't gone to a news site yet where it just says, wonderful news. All I hear is, well, there's one victory which is out there, or there's another slight victory over here, um, our local news here. I, I don't know how f- close you follow San Diego and the state of California, but in the state of California, there's one congressman. He's up north. I, I think it's north of Ventura, up in that area, or uh, maybe it's down below that in the L.A. County area. He was talking about the new laws which are coming into effect. That if you do not affirm the gender norm of today, if a child wants to be a different gender and you are a foster parent and you want to take a child into your household, they will disqualify you if you don't agree with that. And the children also, if they want to identify as some other gender and you disapprove of a as a parent they have the right to take your child away and not even tell you uh, that that's the case and these are the laws that are being passed and there's a congressman up in northern la area and he came out and he said well you know for years we have been fighting for children to make sure that they're protected And he ended up saying, and I heard the quote, what he said, and I'll just paraphrase it. He said, before I'd I'd tell you to fight, he goes, I'm not going to tell you that anymore. I'm going to tell you if you were a parent, you need to leave the state of California. That's what he said. And this was on the Carl DeMaio show. And Carl DeMaio said, you know, we're making some headway. And we have more Congress people uh, now in, in the assembly than we had before. And we're kind of winning a little bit. And you look at that and you go, well, great. You know, here's a congressman, an assemblyman that is saying, you need to leave the state. And you look at that and you go, okay, enough. I don't need any more bad news. Well, I think we're going to have some more bad news. I don't know how bad it's going to get, but we're going to have bad news and it's going to cause more distress, more alarm. We're going to be more disturbed, more upset, more agitated, more uneasy. And that's the way Paul was when he went into Athens. He saw the idolatry there and he said, you know, this is just almost overwhelming. Now, because of this distress, we can look back at Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter Five and the Ten Commandments, which are listed there. Being a Jew, he knew the first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second one is you're to make no graven image of any god or me, of, of anything at all. You go to Israel today, you will not see paintings with people on them. Usually you won't see animals either because they believe that's creating an image of the earth and the Jews don't allow that. So the idolatry that is around here today uh, is just becoming paramount. And if we don't bow to the idolatry today, it used to be you can just live your life the way you want to. Now the forces are coming at, especially the Christians, that you must comply. If you don't comply, if you don't approve, there are going to be consequences. And whether it's the woman in England who was arrested because she was standing on a street corner quietly praying, or the individual who was at a gay pride event that was just simply reading scripture, he was also arrested. This was, uh, I think, in San Francisco. And they cheered when they hauled him away. Of course, they dropped all the charges. He was on a public sidewalk. But they still arrested him and the police officer turned to him and said, let them have their day. Well, that day is coming for us. It's coming for those who believe in the Bible, who believe in the word of God, who believe in absolute truth. There are things that are right and wrong and the world is saying, no, you have to give up that belief. 
and it's infecting the church in lots of churches. Uh, the United Methodist Church just recently had a split with several hundred churches. They divided because love is love and you can recognize gay relationships and baptize them and marry them in a particular branch of the Methodist Church. And so that's the direction many churches are heading. And of course, Scripture talks about the apostasy which is going to come before the rapture. And the apostasy is those forsaking the faith, walking away from the traditional values that are espoused in the scriptures. And they will have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And the Holy Spirit will not be in that type of environment. He will not endorse that type of Christianity. And that's where we are. So with that, we go... Well, how long are we going to endure this before the Lord decides to come and retrieve us in the rapture? I don't know, but I'm probably going to work on a message in the future here called the setup. How much do you think in your mind is being set up for the Antichrist? You look out there in all areas of society And is it being set up for one man to come in and be able to rule over everyone? Is the world looking for that one world leader? They are. They're looking for an individual who will take control. And anybody who goes against that, they will suppress and attack. You know, assassinations, you hear um, echoes of people that are witnesses and trying to stop this stuff. They're just disappearing. They're not around anymore. And, and so we, we look at the world and we go, how, how bad is it and how bad does it need to get before the Lord takes us? I'm sure Paul was thinking, Lord, you need to come back soon. The city of Athens, they are just really going off into idolatry. And use me while I'm here, but I'm waiting for the rapture. I'd rather be in heaven with you. You know, so I'm I'm sure he was thinking the same thing. And the idolatry of today, it's distressing. The postmodernism, which is no absolute truth. The right and wrong are being confused, calling that which is good evil and vice versa. And the cultural norms, the traditional values... They're being done away with. You know, just, just simple things in society. When we grew up, uh, my father and my mother, you know, we, we had the well-kept hair and we had to, when we went out, you know, we had the brill cream and we had to wear a belt and tuck your shirt in and make sure you were neat and if your pants are too long, cuff them up. Uh, and I have pictures that I just came across. I have Levi's with cuffs on the bottom. You know, you cuff those things up and going off to elementary school. I, it was just a different time and you respected the teachers that were there. And if you didn't respect the teachers, you better fear. Usually the principal was six foot 90 and he would just look over you and you would be threatened by that. And even the women teachers, I only had a couple that were small and the other ones were just towering with the bouffant hair that was just way high uh, like Marge from, is that Marge from the Simpsons I mean it was just way up there and you oh you'd be fearful of who they were I can remember Mrs. Stewart was like that Mrs. Mayo was like that and okay you just gotta fall in line today the kids stand up and yell at the teachers and the teachers and the students actually get into fights And you can't do anything to the student. You can't kick the student out. Because of this intersectionality, you can't understand everything that they've gone through. And it is really, like I said, I probably do a message on the setup, you know, where we are and where we're going. But I need to come back to reality here. So what did Paul do? Paul, he he made a connection and he he gave to us kind of an outline. And this is something that would just be second nature to Paul. And it needs to become second nature to us if we want to be a witness to someone who's out there. Now, I'm going to give you a few points here. One, two, three, four, five of them. If you want to reach somebody, the first one, you have to take an interest in their culture. Now, it's pretty easy for us here. We understand, I think, pretty well the culture. We need to know what cultural norms are, what brings an offense, what doesn't bring an offense, how we're going to communicate, 
the likes and dislikes and the beliefs just for all of society. We need to understand those. Secondly, we need to become knowledgeable in what interests the culture. Don't just put it off. Like, do you know what millennials are interested in? Or the Generation X, or some people call them the iGen. Do you understand what they like, what they're about? Well, we know that they're about their phones. We know that they're about gaming. They like gaming, even the youth that's here. I, I talk to them about gaming. I've, I've played a couple of games that they play, and when they say, you've played on Congregate? Yeah, I've played on... Oh, Pastor Bill, you're in. You know, this, is, this is good. It, you have to know what it is that they like and what it is that they relate to over there. And they've been using um, uh, Life360, like they're, they're connected Life360 is an app where they know where each other is at any time. Kind of like Google Maps. Google Maps has that. But the Life360, you can keep track of where somebody is. And I'll ask them, is so-and-so coming? Let me check. And Oh, no, they're over at the corner of whatever in this particular city. Uh, they will be here or they won't be here. So they're connected. They, they are constantly texting. I don't know how they do it with the two thumbs going so quickly. But they do. And, and they understand each other. And when you bring up something that is relevant to their culture, like, you know, I think most of us maybe understand what memes are. They love memes. That's what they're into. And they know the sites that have the memes. And they know where their culture is headed. And so we need to take an interest in them if we want to reach them. Now, Paul would have been familiar with the Hellenistic culture, familiar with the pantheon of Greek gods. If you go to... Athens today, you'll see the Pantheon is just this round building, has a, a front facade on it, and it honors all the gods, or about 10 or 12 gods that are on inside that the Greeks used to worship. And he also would mingle with them. Not only did he go to the synagogue, but he went to the marketplace. If we want to reach people, we have to reach out to them. Now, uh, Patty and I were at the fair. We went to the fair, and we like to do that every year, just people watch and look at the kids getting sick on the rides, you know, and going through the tents and buying this, that, and knick-knack and a paddywhack. And we, we get that stuff in the tents and in the buildings. And we have a good time doing that. And we're sitting down. They never have enough tables and chairs. And we're sitting down at a table. It's like a picnic bench made out of concrete. And there's not enough room for everybody to sit down. So you start packing in next to people you don't even know. And, of course, it's, uh, another couple older than us, because we're elderly, they, they sat on the other side. Where are you from? Oh, it's good to see you. They're from Point Loma. And she got a deep-fried s'more or something like that. And, you know, we just had this conversation going back and forth. And that's what we need to do. We need to have a conversation with the people that are out there if we hope to reach them. So we want to go where they are. Paul went to the synagogue and the marketplace, the place of worship and the place of commerce. Paul did all of that. And then Paul reasoned with the Jews and the Greeks. He engaged people in conversation. And he went on to explain who God is. Now, of course, this happened at the Areopagus. Now, Paul makes the case for this unknown God. He, he lets them know that God created all things, he sustains all things, he ordains all things, he is over all things, and he judges all things. Now we're going to go from verse 24 to the end of the chapter, Lord willing, and we're going to see how he does this. Now he makes the case that God created all things. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he's talking about the omnis of God. He created all things. He must be omnipotent, all-powerful. If he made the universe, they, they could see the stars. They couldn't see much beyond that, but they could see the stars. They could see the earth and how it works. And Paul says, this is the unknown God. He is the one that has created everything. To create everything, you have to know everything about that which is created, uh, to put it together. If you're a mechanic and you work on an a engine, you need to know what's in there. If you make 
the planet and how it works, you need to know about it. So he's talking about the omniscience of God and also the omnipresence. He made everything. He made everyone. He has been to the far reaches of the universe as well as to the depths of the earth. He knows all about it because he put it together. And then he makes this final statement in this section that God doesn't need anything. There is a theological term for this. It's called the aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y of God. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. He is self-existent. He is completely independent. He doesn't need us whatsoever for anything, nor does he need any angels. He doesn't need anything. The mystery to me is, why did he create us? It's like it was for his good pleasure that he decided to do that. It was something that appealed to him as God. I'm going to do this great thing. And it is a great thing. And he created the whole universe for who? For you and I. He created this whole universe. Now, if it hadn't have fallen, we would have spent all of eternity discovering the universe. But God's going to destroy all that. And he's going to make another one that isn't subject to the fall. And so he doesn't need anything from anyone. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Now, secondly, God sustains all things. From one man, verse 26, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So he planted each one of us in a particular place. It's his sustaining work that keeps us where we need to be. Now, imagine how fortunate you are. You are in a place here in Lakeside, country living, the renowned worldwide rodeo which is famous. The, the, this rodeo here in Lakeside is known throughout the United States. We have the infamous Lakeside Hotel. That Lakeside Hotel, they know about it down in Chula Vista and beyond. I mean, it's, it's a noteworthy place. We have Mary's Donuts and Lindo Lake. I'm, you get to live here of all places. And God says, I'm putting you next to Lindo Lake. That's where you're going to live. Why? Because that's the best place for you to have a chance to be saved and be discipled. That's going to be your place. Now, sometimes we go to this place and sometimes we leave this place and we go to other places. But God has orchestrated all of this. He is the one that sustains everyone where they are so that they might somehow get the gospel. If you think back to how you got saved, how did it happen? You look back, somebody talked to you. Now, for me, it was the radio. I I didn't really talk to anyone. I'd had some influence in uh, some sports that I was involved in, but it was the radio. That's how I got saved. So God took a guy who got saved from somebody else, put him on the radio down in Palm Desert, I listened to him. I listened on the drive back and forth because I was interested in God, who God is. And I got saved from that guy. And then God moved me back up here. And then when Patty and I got married, where are we going to live? Are we going to live down in South Bay? And I felt, no, we're supposed to be like in El Cajon. So we moved to El Cajon. And then after that, Lakeside opened up. And we got here in Lakeside. And all the people that we have run into in the past 35 plus years here in Lakeside. You know, it's just been one of those things where people get saved, people get discipled, including myself. And so God has orchestrated this. He has sustained it. Then God also has ordained all things. Third point, for in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he determined, and by the way, he's quoting two secular poets here. One is Epimenes, and the other one is Eridus. And these two guys were well-known back at the time, and he is making the case that it is God who 
is not only sustaining us, but he ordained that we should live. Now, when we see this, we, we have to really spend some time and meditate on it, that this idea, well, how does God sustain and ordain? How does he do that? Does he determine every step that we make? Has God determined what you're going to do and where you're going to go today? Has God set in motion every single atom and molecule that is in this room and kept it there and we cannot influence? Has God determined what your wants and desires are and will be in order to accomplish his will? There is this view out there that God has his hand on every single thing and person, animal, beast, insect, wind, you name it. He is actually moving every one of those things to do his will. Now, if you believe that, there could be some issues. Now, one of the issues would be, do you really have a free will if God has ordained this? There is this view that God purposed that Satan would sin. God has purposed that you would sin and continue to sin in your flesh to accomplish his good purpose. This is called determinism. God has determined that you will do exactly what he wants you to do and people will get saved exactly as he wants them to get saved and people won't get saved exactly as he doesn't want them to get saved there's this view that is out there i look at the bible and i say yeah i'm not so sure that that is how this actually works i'm not so sure that the bible teaches that God works I believe and we can make some independent decisions and we can respond to God God ordains but not in the strictest sense some would say that God moves with purpose uh, and he moves every atom in the universe Uh, some would say God purposes some to salvation some to damnation others would say that God put everything in motion and left and it's all up to us to choose these would be the deists deists out there say God created everything and then he took a hike. He's no longer doing anything in this world. Which one is true? Do we have total autonomy and free will like the deists would say? Or would we be a determinist saying, no, God controls every single thing, even your thought and your sin life and everything concerning his will is done in your life. Which one is true? Well, I'm here. I'm in the middle. Uh, the teaching on this is called Molinism, where God does set everything up. And there's some particular people, he says, you're going to be saved and you're going to do my will. For instance, who might those people be? Remember John the Baptist? He leaped for joy when Mary came into the room because the Holy Spirit was already in him in the womb. And he became the greatest of all Old Testament prophets. And we see him in the New Testament. God said, you are my man. John the Baptist, you are the one. What about King David? What about Saul? Were those guys foreordained that they would be used by God? What about Samuel? Like Adam, did he purpose? Adam, you're going to be a man and I'm going to create you. And what about Moses? Now, if you look at all of these individuals... Did all of these individuals make decisions that God didn't want them, him to make, or them to make? Yes, they did. Adam had the fall. Moses was going to be killed by God. David was an adulterer. You know, all of these different people made choices that God said, no, that, that's not what I had in mind. Now, I don't know that God exactly said it like that. But for instance... This idea of repentance, does God give us a choice unless you repent, you too will perish? Let me read you a section of scripture, Luke chapter 13, 
Verse 1, it says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans who blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. If God is orchestrating everything, why is he telling people to repent? It's incumbent upon them to make the decision to repent. They have to respond. Now, God gives the offer of salvation, but they have to respond. He also goes on to say, Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. What about the Exodus, the Israelites? Were they a stiff-necked people? Did they just do what they wanted to do and paid no regard to God and what the commandments were? Like, can you say golden calf, you know, that they made and that was not God's will? They were constantly being disobedient, resisting the will of God, resisting the Holy Spirit. And we see also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, for us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If he causes us, even in our sin life, to do those sins, how is it that we could be guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit when he commands that we do those sins to carry out his will? It just doesn't make reasonable sense. And so we can't look at scripture like that. What about all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved? Well, you have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. That gives us the responsibility to do that. But God could easily make us call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so it would have been written differently without having us bear the responsibility, at least according to Scripture. But he doesn't do that. And so we want to make sure that we're not saying God is control of every single atom, every single decision, everybody who has fallen, everybody who has committed sin, all of those things he has foreordained. I don't believe that. I believe he has set certain people up, certain things to happen, and then we get to choose Sometimes I get the question, well, what is God's will for me in this? Whatever it might be, getting married, moving, getting a job. And I always tell them, well, there's certain things God tells us it's not his will for us to do. Like sexual immorality, avoid sexual immorality. Scripture says that. It's God's will that you avoid sexual immorality. It says that. And he has a couple of things like that that he says. Like, for instance, don't be a thief. You don't have to pray about stealing something. God says, don't be a thief. Uh, Don't take God's name in vain. Don't do that. Don't have filthy language come out of your mouth. All of those. That's God's will for us. And I tell the people, I say, are you doing what scripture says? I mean, for the most part, we all blow it every once in a while. But for the most part, are you seeking after God? Are you a disciple? Are you growing in your faith? Are you doing all of that? You know, are you, are you praying? Are you attending church? Are you doing study? Are you, are you giving? Are you you're helping support those who go out in the mission field? Are you doing all those things? And as they say, yeah, I said, well, then you get to choose. You, you can just choose and whichever way you choose. God will bless the way that you choose and he will use your decision to carry out his will. You know, even for us in Romans eight twenty eight, it says that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So those of us who believe even the bad things, God will turn around and use for our good. So we get to choose in this particular case, at least in this life, while we are here. So this is the idea of Molinism and Molinism was a a doctrine that came up in the 16th century by Louis Molina he was a celebrated Spanish Jesuit and he said you know there, there has to be some reconciliation of this either we have total free will or God is totally in control of everything and I believe the Bible teaches just like Louis Molina that it's right in between and this idea of determinism if God controls every single thing you will digress into fatalism. It doesn't matter what I do because God ordained that it should happen. And so if I kill somebody, he ordained it. If I save somebody, he ordained it. It doesn't matter what is the purpose of life. And that's the end road. That's the slippery slope. That's where you go to. And that's why people are committing suicide in huge numbers. 
is because they get to this idea if there's determinism that's fatalism it doesn't matter what I do if there is no God if there is no truth this postmodern society what's the point and they don't have information about the saving grace of Jesus Christ that there's something better that lies ahead and he calls upon us to persevere and we're supposed to do so with joy knowing that we have something at the end of this life so and God even said in Genesis chapter 3 when or excuse me chapter 6 verse 3 when the flood was going to come God said I will not contend with man forever he's not going to war with man back and forth if God is determining everything how is it he's contending with humankind mankind how, how is it that that's happening it's not happening so God gives us a choice we can resist his choice for us and now God has a permissive will and he has a perfect will his perfect will we know what it is from scripture that we do not sin, that we trust in him, we get saved, we go to heaven, get a resurrected body, live forever. That's his perfect will. We don't always do his perfect will. But sometimes he allows things to take place and he tolerates those things. But for the believer, he will use those for our good. Now verse 29, God is not like an idol. It says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold silver or stone an image made by man's design and skill and so god is the one who gives us life he's the one that's created us he is not like an idol an idol can do nothing and the idols that lined the streets in athens where paul was he's saying they can do nothing this unknown god this this um uh, what do they call it not a statue but the the uh, base it was probably a base with no um, no statue on it and he walks up and it just says uh, pillar to an unknown God that's the God who is real and you cannot carve him and make him into an image now we want to do this and that's what the Greeks did they had all these ideas of how the world works what to believe, and they made a God that would be over that area, whether it's family, whether it's philosophy, whether it's war, whether it's hell. They said there's a God over each one of those. They created gods in their own thinking or in their own image. We do the same thing. For instance, when it comes to marriage and work and family and uh, belief for the afterlife, we create what we want we have this idea of what is good and the way god would approve of what we believe we have concocted these things in our mind the only thing that brings us back is god's word and he tells us no these things are true right and just and this is how we should live i'm going to give you an example from time to time i will get a phone call to either uh, perform a memorial or ask to officiate a wedding. And when I get the call for a wedding, I don't meet with them first. I usually tell them, well, this is how we do weddings. I just had this happen. Somebody wanted to get married. And so I called them back and they told me they wanted to get married. And I said, okay, well, we usually have a first meeting. And the first meeting, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about in the meeting. And I let them know, I will be asking, are you both believers in Jesus Christ? I would ask them that because I will not perform a marriage for somebody who is a believer and an unbeliever. I, I won't do it. Scripture says, you know, to be unequally yoked. And that would be a mistake for me. Now, if they're both unbelievers... I don't have a problem performing a wedding. It's my chance to witness to them. Now, if one becomes a believer during the premarital counseling and the other one does not, we got a problem because I'm not going to couple them together, so to speak. So I said, our first meeting, I'm going to ask you if you're both believers. I'm also going to ask you if you're living together, if you guys are having a physical relationship together. And I said, with premarital counseling, it can take up to six sessions where we meet together, we do some homework, and we learn about the scriptures and about divorce and adultery and all of those things. We, we go through all of that. And I also finished it out and, and said, uh, I also checked to see if you are biblically eligible to be remarried. Like if somebody comes in and says, yeah, I've been married four times. I'm going number five. And I usually say, yeah, I don't think you ought to 
get married. You know, is what I tell them. Then I point them to scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that if you're a believer and you have divorced another believer, you have to remain single or be reconciled to your previous spouse. Obviously, there's a problem with the choices you are making, and I'm not going to assist you in those improper choices. So that's what I just did in this recent phone conversation that I had. And I said, would you like to come in? And the person kind of soured and said, well, no, parents were living in sin and you're the second person that has turned me down. It's like a light goes on. The second person who has turned you down. It's like, what does scripture have to say? This man had in his own mind what he thought was good, right, and just, and he wanted to go to church to get married. And I'm going, no, we're supposed to live this way. He had created a God in his own image, what he thought God should be and what he had approve of and what he had disapprove of. I hear things like this, not on a regular basis, but often. You know, well, I don't think God would do that. Really? What does scripture have to say? Where does it say it in scripture? That Would he do that? Would he not do that? And so we create gods in our own image and it's a mistake for us to do that. If you want to know who God is, you have to read about him or listen to the scriptures. You get the Ten Commandments, you get the books of the Bible, you get the characters, the people who were in there. You understand how they interacted with God and what God approved of and what he disapproved of. And that is what sets the standards for us. So with hell or marriage or heaven or sin or judgment or salvation or eternity, God has the answers for all of that. We should not make it up in our minds. Just... You know, like the Catholic Church, there's purgatory. And you can spend 10,000 years in purgatory. That's made up. We made up a God in the Catholic religion that it's after our own image. We want God to be this way, this particular type of God. Now, going on, here Paul was preaching. God is a judge of all things. Verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day... When he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, he has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris or Damaris, and a number of others. So God will judge all things. We will each appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of our lives. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 talks about that. Now, for us, how do we apply all of this? Well, we have to remember... Paul makes the case God created all things, sustains all things, ordains all things, is over all things, he judges all things. He is the one who is in control. But I guess I can leave you with the exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. It says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men, evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you have known Excuse me, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what we need to do is take this admonition that Paul, that's encouragement that Paul gives to Timothy we need to do the same thing. We know who we have learned these things from. We want to make sure that we refer to Scripture. If we're not sure about something, we go to Scripture to find out. We test all things by the Word of God. Remember Acts seventeen eleven. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. They received the Word with eagerness, and they tested to see if what Paul said was true. That's what we're supposed to do. And so in our outreach to others, we want to make sure 
we have something ready to go. I told you last week, if it's a Muslim, talk about Abraham. If it's a Jehovah Witness, talk about the New World Translation. Show that Jesus is God from that translation. If it's an atheist, you can talk about existence or existentialism, why we exist, why everything is here the way it is. You can help them understand that you see everything is broken and there are problems in the world. Well, why is that? And you can get on uh, a talk about the moral lawgiver. Well, what about Mormons? What, what would you say to Mormons? You would have a conversation about Luke chapter 22, about marriage. There is no marriage in heaven. That's why they have the temples, so that they can go to the temples and get married. That's the first place that you can start. And is there only one God? Isaiah chapter 44 says there's only one God. But they believe in polytheism that everyone becomes a God who wants to become a God. And so you find this connection. And these people are all around us. And if you have a Christian that needs some encouraging, well, you need to have some scriptures ready to go for them. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6. I think it was just on the... uh, Uh, perspective that was up there trust in the lord with all your heart lean not to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths something for everybody have a word of encouragement ready to go make sure you have something like the romans road down that you can witness to them when you have the opportunity my prayer for you is that even this week god will put somebody in your path that you have a chance to share the gospel with or just encourage somebody start looking for it Because I I know God wants us to do that. And I pray that he will provide that opportunity. So let's pray. Father, I I ask that you would give all of us an opportunity this next week to be a witness for you. We see how Paul did it. How he found some kind of connection. And that he had the information behind him. He understood the Hellenistic culture. He understood how to talk to those who were not believers. I ask that you would give us wisdom in this. That as we come across anybody who needs some encouragement or needs the gospel, that we would fill our hearts and our minds with the word and you would move in us by your spirit and be that paraclete that comes alongside and ministers to the person that needs help. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul and his faithfulness and his ability to speak out. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our closing song.